Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I visited the Fleet Air Arm Museum at Yeovilton, part of the National Museum of the Royal Navy. And I was given a guided tour by Dave Morris, the principal conservator at the museum. We began in the museum's first hangar, looking at the supermarine walrus and talking about the history of air-sea rescue. So, once you go back... Prior to World War II, even fewer people realise where it absolutely starts with those first pickups in World War I, which begins to emphasise a number of things. There's two or three things happen in World War I. One, the Admiralty become very, very aware that aircraft need to be taken to sea because yes. they're strategically important. And two, of course, that brings in a whole new level of danger. Uh, with downed pilots uh, or you know, aircraft which are going wrong or being shot down or even just getting lost and running out of fuel, suddenly there's a whole new dimension to having to find somebody at sea. And, uh, and so the, search and the, the absolute embryo of search and rescue begins during World War I, but, that, but then doesn't get recognised until those stages. You know, that's yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because it blows out of the water what I had read about this Kiwi. So. <laughs> well, he, I mean, as, a, as um, somebody that was picking up in a walrus during World War II, he may well have been, and I'm not familiar with the name, but absolutely may well have been the first person to be using a walrus yeah, during awesome. combat during World War II, yeah. which is in a sense the next generation of search and rescue and the next generation of aircraft. It's that earlier generation which was very ad hoc and people don't always understand it or know the detail of 
that very, very fine line of little timeline of history where it absolutely begins, um, but it's not even developed enough at that stage to really be known about. Uh, and that's why it gets picked up more in, in World War II and then very much more in post-war. And today, any TV documentary you watch of, you know, Emergency 999 and helicopter rescues and everything else, of course, people associate that immediately. And then you see the Sea King at the bottom there in, in the search and rescue colours. That's what people sitting at the beach of the seaside see. That's what people walking on the hills in the high ground of Scotland and the north of England see. That's what they immediately identify as search and rescue. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Well, um, I suppose I should actually get you to introduce yourself for the right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We sort of started there, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you've got any of that or whether no, you're even recording. With, right, okay. It, it would have been good if I started recording. Oh, right, okay. Okay, I, I didn't, didn't sort of think about that. Um, but yeah, if you're rolling, well, hello, my name's Dave Morris, Principal Conservator at the Fleet Air Arm Museum, Yeovilton in Somerset. So I've been here, longest serving member on the staff at the moment. I, I came in 1981 as a junior restoration engineer and have ended up doing effectively a career span. I hadn't expected to stay here that long. I hadn't expected it to give so many interesting opportunities and projects um, and scope to stay as a, as a career span here. So I've gone from junior restoration engineer through to senior engineer, curator of aircraft, now principal conservator here at, at the Fleet Air Arm Museum. Um, which has grown and I've watched it grow yep. over that period of time. I've been here, if I think about it, I've been here over half my, <laughs> over half my life and over half the length of the, the, the extent of the collection, which is uh, a bit mind-boggling when, when you kind of stop and think about it that way. Um, so many of these aircraft I've seen come into the collection or I have helped be responsible for getting into the collection and that's been quite a, a inspiring sort of part of being here, to be able to be part of the team which is making the observations, selecting the aircraft, achieving getting them into the collection. I've enjoyed that very, very much over those years. But I've also hopefully steered the background and the ethics and, and the thinking behind how we handle the objects when we get them here. When I joined back in 1981, I was a little surprised, even though I was in quite a junior position, I was a little surprised to see the trend then, which is typical, through you know, the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And I'd been aware of it and seen it with motorcycle collections and car collections and you know, all sorts of other things I've been involved with. It's most people's idea of restoring an object is to strip it back and paint it with brand new paint and give it a, a whole new sort of visual um, presentation. Yes, if that's necessary, yes, if that's what was required or if that was really necessary to, to treat corrosions or, or damage or whatever or, you know, in the manufacture of completely new parts, I, I could get that. But there was a lot of airplanes in the collection which I felt were just being painted and polished with not so much background thinking as to how original they still were and actually saving that originality to me was true restoration, that, that was the careful bit, that was the conservation and restoration that yeah, I, I just felt was lacking in some areas. Yeah. And it's taken a while for my position and seniority to gradually sort of increase to get to the point where I could start making some of those stop points and, and rethink processes and look at how we deal with the collection differently. And I hope as we go around you'll, you'll see one or two of the items that I think have addressed that. Right. Um, so, so that's something I've been very keen on 
and that's in a sense what's helped me stay here. The, 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 the trustees, the senior um, body of the team, um, right up to the highest level, have seen that. They've responded to that. They've recognised that too and agreed. And they've let me and the team do a lot on not just presenting aircraft in perhaps a repainted fashion if that's what was required, but also making that step change and allowing us to really treat some of the very original objects as very original objects and, and work hard to retain those finishes and then interpret them correctly so people understand it. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's obviously lacking before is people wouldn't necessarily have understood how original an object was if it doesn't go hand in hand with a good interpretation. And then people get it. And a lot of people we do um, visitor surveys and just stop and chat to people in, uh, that are visiting like anybody today they nearly always once they've got the interpretation once they understand why something is looking not so spick and span and shiny and looks a bit careworn and, and rubbed around the edges when you explain to them how original that is they then actually begin to appreciate that and think yes that's if it's a museum and I'm coming to a museum to see old cars or planes or bikes actually that's what I should be expecting to see is some that look like that uh, and that's been quite pleasing to, to, to get that response from people that they do understand and then they really appreciate it more um, if the interpretation is there and it, it makes those objects more precious because the ones which have been repainted yes there's nothing wrong with them and if the paint job's done well yes there's nothing wrong with that but it's no longer original they look very presentable um, and, that, and that's you know, great but then the really precious ones, the old, completely original ones, stand out that little bit more. And I think people have got that balance and that match to make. So. I, I, I t totally agree. I see what you're talking about. And I know that um, particularly famous here is the Corsair, which was, has been preserved with its original paint rather than, you know, put nice shiny new paint on it. Um, and I equate uh, a more recent um, uh, preserved aircraft which has just uh, about a year ago gone on, on display in New Zealand, which is the Gloria Lions P40. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, it's actually still in the exact same paint that it was wearing up in the Pacific. Um, and it sat in the um, scrapyard for maybe oh, about 20 years, but that paint was probably just as warm when it went there as it was when it came out. And now it's been put back together and it's in a museum under the lights and it, it just looks incredible. It really looks incredible and, you know, it's, um, and it's preserved wartime paint. Uh, absolutely, and it, it, uh, I love it, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's, like I say, a car, a tractor, a, a motorcycle, a, an airplane, it doesn't matter what it is. I just really enjoy seeing something which is completely left alone and people yeah. that are brave enough and in a sense responsible enough if they want to call their object an interesting historical object to then really think about it and then go lightly with any kind of intervention and really try and save that original paint. The paint or the transfers or the pinstripe lining or whatever it was was put on by somebody in a factory in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. That's the real history bit. That's what they last touched. Yes. And I hate to alter that unless there's an absolute need um, because it's the best reference material. It's, it's as, people often say to me, oh, I've restored it to original condition. No, it already was in the original condition. <laughs> you made a really, really good job of repainting it to look like an original one, but it already was in the original condition. Um, and and I've, I've seen some 
good and bad work done over the years, of course, but I always like to see the one which is just, someone's just careful enough and brave enough to leave it as it is, and, and that's what we try and do some of the objects here. Um, yeah, and the detail, <clears throat> the referencing detail that everybody can benefit from. This is, yeah, whoever it is, authors, model makers, other aircraft restorers, anybody, historians writing about um, that particular subject or object, you just can't better the absolute original colors, markings, details, and things which have happened to the aircraft. If you look at the Corsair that you were referring to, and we'll look at that shortly, um, just where people have worked on it, made scratch marks, clambered on it, where their boot marks have gone, where they shouldn't have gone, you know, yeah, so yeah. it tells a story. Everything paint does always tell a story. Paint paint is responsible for us finally solving lots of things to do with our aircraft back stories and back histories. The, the, the paint is the bits that people do touch on a regular basis in service uh, around, you know, access points. If it's a car, it'll always be around, you know, certain points with the car or the door handles, or whatever. Yeah. You can just get patterns of where you can picture what's happened and on aircraft you know there's, there's lots of things that, that that have maybe just been adjusted or happened in service that if they're left alone still tell that little bit of a story and, and that to us is very very fascinating absolutely i'd much prefer to see what you're talking about than those really ultra shiny um restorations to see a lot of the particularly the states some of the the warbirds are just too shiny. They, they can be a little bit, uh, fall into the trap of, 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 of being a touch too precise and a touch too shiny. Yeah. They look impressive, don't get me wrong, they look stunning. Yeah, uh, they they're fantastic yeah. showpieces. They're exquisite engineering, they're exquisite preparation. Um, and if you're flying one, okay. And if you need everything to be absolutely spot on because you need to safely fly it and safely understand that aircraft from a flying perspective, I, I haven't got a problem with it. If, you, if, if, if your business is flying it safely yes. and maintaining it safely and operating it safely and understanding that aircraft safely, um, I don't have a problem with it. If your business is in a museum, then I would sit and happily debate with anybody yeah. the pros and cons of, of where that does and doesn't work. You know, so, uh, and, and at the end of the day, it's everybody's object. If it's your own private object, of course, you can do what you like with it. But if I'm doing my job properly here, then I like to think that we'd sit and talk about it longer rather than just race to yeah. doing something which we actually think, ah, in hindsight, perhaps we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. So I do balance it. I know a lot of people around the world, I've got a lot of very good friends that do operate flying aircraft for every good and right reason, and they need to be completely in control of everything about that airplane uh, so they can understand it safely. And I, that I totally accept and agree, yeah. but, but it's that split. It's that, and there's room for both in the world. Yes. There's room for the flying and there's room for the museum world. Yeah. And they shouldn't be at loggerheads with each other. We should actually be you know, collaborating and, and, and feeding off each other's experiences and knowledges and background information. And, that, and that's when it works the best. Yeah, 100%. Um, they're, both telling the same, mm. they're both telling a slightly different story of the history of that type of aircraft. So. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So um, when did this museum actually first open? Museum first opened in 1964. Mm -hmm. uh, the late Duke of Edinburgh opened it. Uh, the Royal Navy Review happened here in 1964. The whole museum came as a result of people, uh, senior fleet air arm, um, top brass at the time, people, people like Admiral Percy Jick and uh, Admiral Gibson, who had gone to America on a Royal Navy business trip 
had gone to Pensacola and seen the American um, Naval Museum uh, and the way they were presenting that to the public, they were married, the way they were using it as a, as a sort of a, a, sh a shop window for the American public to see what the Royal Navy history was, or the flying history was, yep. and be able to stand and view aircraft flying at the associated air, airfield there. And on their way back, they decided that that's actually what they needed at Yeovilton. Yeovilton was the headquarters of Fleet Air Arm Flying. It had been the fighter control training base from World War II. It, it had grown into the, the, the headquarters of Fleet Air Arm Flying. And that small group of top brass had decided by the time they'd returned to Yeovilton that actually, with the road access going past the museum, with the fact that there was a potential for to make a, a small deviation off of the road, make a little car park pull in that people could park there, maybe, you know, to break their journey if they were heading south, watch the aircraft flying that were current at that time, Vixens, um, Symmetry's Vixens, that type of aircraft, and that they should have a public relations officer on the airbase, they should have this small viewing um, place by the road that people could safely pull in and, and watch, and that ultimately they should have a... Um, hangar that, that would be open to the public that, that some historic aircraft could be housed in and people could do the same as, as they'd seen in, in America. People could come in and begin to look at and understand Royal Naval flying because it is still something that is a, a hurdle for us today that most people see an aircraft flying. It's either a civilian jet taking somebody on holiday and if it's not then it must be the RAF. Um, so the, there's a huge amount of people out there still don't necessarily stop and think any further than anything which is military and flying is the Royal Air Force and the, 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 the fly navy message is something we're, we're still getting people to understand today and that's exactly what they wanted people to understand in 1960. So this business trip that they went on was in 1960, yeah. it took until 1964 for their aspirations to begin to gain enough traction to get them the car parking space to get the air ministry to allow them to have a hangar um, at this end of the site which would be convenient to the road and that's how the, the Fleet Air Museum started with one hangar and, and one car park pull-in uh, back in 1964 and of course it's gone from strength to strength. We've now got four exhibition halls, we've got a huge reserve store facility on the opposite side of the road which isn't always open to the public but, but we try to on occasions make that available. Um, and the collection has grown from five aircraft in 1964 to now 103 in total in the collection, not all of which are on display, but with the close proximity of that reserve hangar, we can rotate the aircraft around and refresh the storyline in the exhibition halls. Uh, every, probably every three to five years, we find that most people that are doing return visits are beginning to sort of notice that we haven't changed much every three to five years, so we like to keep the storyline refreshed yes. at that at that stage. Gosh, that's a huge collection. I didn't realise there was that many years. Yeah, absolutely, it's, yeah. it's 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 astonishing. Like I say, I think I've I've seen probably fifty of those aircraft come in in my time here. So you know, everybody that's been involved with the museum at the sort of curatorial or director level um, and collection level has all worked very hard over the years to, to, to gather together some pretty significant aircraft. If we look at that, if we just take that as the theme, then in the hall we're standing in now, 
we've got a replica. It's a full-size replica. This was actually commissioned by Lord Mountbatten um, when he was a senior trustee of the Fleet Air Arm Museum in the early 1970s. Um, he had been taken up as a child, aged 12, by Sampson in World War One. He'd okay. actually been taken up and flown in a short S-27 in that little bench back seat behind the, 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 the pilot seat there. Yep. Um, and he had that remarkable opportunity as a 12 year old boy to go up and fly in an S-27. Uh, clearly that was burned into his memory bank forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It certainly would in mine, I know that. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and when he became a member of the, the museum's board, um, one of the first things he said was, that there, that aircraft, the short S-27, is the first fixed wing aircraft type that the Royal Navy trained their pilots to fly on. We must have an example in the museum. Well, of okay. course, no examples exist originally. Yeah. So he had the Fleetlands uh, Naval Air Apprentices, uh, Fleetlands in, in Gosport, build from drawings uh, a full-size replica of the S-27. So that's why we have the S-27 there, but a huge significant object because of that start point link. So yes, if, we're looking at, if we're looking at what the Royal Navy ever flew very first of all, that's the type of aircraft they flew. Okay. 35 miles per hour takeoff speed, 45 miles per hour top speed flying. Gosh. So a galloping horse would keep up with you yeah. and, a, and a good mallard or pigeon would pass you in flight. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the best money you could buy at that time. Um, so if we've got that, you know, immediately then we swing to the little stop with baby float plane here, 1915-16. Um, this is something we get children and, and school groups looking at. If you look at that, it's basically an update of the Wright Brothers uh -huh. um, concept, box kite. Yes. Yeah. Not much changes between 1903 when the Wrights first, first achieved man-powered flight all the way up to sort of 1913. There's not a lot of change with aircraft design and requirement at that point. So not a huge amount changes with, with aircraft designs and requirements from 1903 up to 1913, and all of a sudden, you know, that, that, that element of war, the necessity of war. Yeah. Look at what we're making within two to three years of World War I. Amazing. And we get the children looking at this smaller, faster, more capability, more modern materials. Everything about it is, is, is suddenly changed from, you had to have one of those. Yep. It was the best that money could buy. Yep. And now that looks horrifically out of date. <laughs> and you can have this, which goes faster and it's much smaller and everything else. And we get them thinking about how does that reflect technology they know today? And of course, they all look at their iPhones and their laptops and whatever, yep, and yep. cameras. And of course, it's exactly the same. That technology curve has always done that. The, the first thing out, everybody wants it, but it's the size of a suitcase. And within a couple of months, you can slip it in your pocket and it does five times more and it's much faster and everybody wants one of those instead. Well, this is exactly what was happening with the technology in, in World War One. Um, so, so this is a Sop With Baby? Sop With Baby. It's not original completely. There's probably about 30 to 40 percent of original baby parts on it. But again, this was a Fleetlands apprentice project okay. at the uh, Air Training School in Fleetlands in the 1970s. So, yeah. Where does but, that come in the Sop With family with the pup and the... Um, scout and all the uh, how is it earlier than the pup or, or the camel? Or? Uh, yes, it's 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 it's, it's, it's uh, 
they are all in a sense being developed almost at the same time so it's, it's very very short timelines between each uh, but the baby was one of the first out of the, the batch of the Sopwith um, range of aircraft then the pup then the camel um, so yeah it, it, but I mean the, the one and a half strata the starting they're all almost feeding off each other for designs and little strands of, of what one is developing and developing into that they can also build into another aircraft type. Some of the, I mean, any British aircraft, anywhere, you know, not just Britain, but the British aircraft industry at the time is absolutely snowballing. And again, in World War II, so the, so the speed of development of some of these aircraft, when you really start to analyze which one came first, how it actually gets onto the front line or being used in service and where they are all vying for their own positions through the drawing board, through the office, you know, through that drawing stages, through yep. the development and prototyping stages to become an aircraft that we recognize. Ferry Aviation is a classic example of that in World War II. You look at some of the designs that are on the drawing board, but take a long time to get into production. Well, what do you call coming first? Because they actually had the concept a lot earlier working on it, even though it didn't happen as an aircraft. Right. So I'm always wary to say, so-and-so comes first and then it comes first. There's a lot of drawing office and a lot of design crossover where you could argue, actually, those two are pretty much side by side. Fair enough, yeah. They're just not appearing as a complete airplane at that point, but they were certainly being thought about and designed as a complete airplane further back in, in, in the thinking process. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, but it's a great example of that technology change that Absolutely. so many people are familiar with today but don't even stop to think about it yeah and it can be almost any product that we use yeah. the airplane has done the same yeah. absolutely uh, I, I only found out the other day that the local electronics store said oh, we're no longer uh, going to be selling CD players um, DVD players or cameras and I was like well, what's replaced the camera which is the phone I'm like <laughs> oh, I've, I've joked for I've joked for quite a while with my wife who's got a brand new Wizzy iPhone 12 or something, um, which I have, and I've still got a basic old Nokia, which which fits in my pocket, and if I drop it, it costs me a tenner. <laughs> and you know, it works. It rings if somebody phones me, and that's, and that's all I need it to do. But she's got this fantastic piece of equipment that she carries around, which I always joke for a long time now saying that her phone is so good she can take photographs on it. Yeah. <laughs> Way better than my, my digital SLR as yeah, well. Exactly. <laughs> Before we leave this hall, I'll just point out the short 184. We've got the remains of the right. short 184 there in, in that showcase, uh, that environmentally controlled showcase. That is the, um, the remains of Brutland's aircraft from the Battle of Jutland. So, so there was only one aircraft effectively operational at the Battle of Jutland, uh, there would have been Zeppelins on the German side, but the cloud and the, and the weather prevented them from taking part. There were some Sopwith babies uh, with the British fleet, but again, the weather uh, prevented those from getting uh, seaborne and airborne. But Rutland um, got airborne in, in the, the, the short 184 and flew fairly close to the German fleet um, spotting, spotting full of shot and spotting positions of aircraft and radioing back with Morse radio. So it wasn't, it wasn't voice transferred radio, it was still Morse um, radio message transferred. Yep. Um, and that in a sense was the weak point in the Achilles heel <clears throat> because the benefit of having 
the short 184 having an aircraft roving around out near an, an, an observational distance from the German fleet was absolutely key to relaying tactically messages back to the British fleet. The downfall at that stage was of course the message gets relayed back to the first ship of the line who then transfers it to the second ship of the line yeah. by semaphore through smoke and fog. Right. We right. then relays it to the third aircraft and the fourth, uh, the fourth ship rather than the fourth to the fifth and fifth to the sixth. So it could be 15 or 20 minutes before the seventh or eighth ship in line gets the message having re-semaphored back. Can you repeat? Because they right. may not have got the whole message. Yeah. So, so the communication was the, was the downfall. So suddenly you had ships going to sea, you had aircraft doing a vital job with those ships going to sea. Now it was the communication link that was the Achilles heel. And Admiral Vitti recognises two things at the end of Jutland. One, it's absolutely imperative that the, that the Royal Naval Air Service carry and take trained pilots and, and, and capable aircraft to sea with their fleets. Two, communication is the, is the big nut to, to crack at that point. Yes. And of course that's what gets um, dealt with successively from there on. Fantastic. So the, the Walrus here came from Australia, didn't it? Not this one. Not this one. This one. This one. This was with um, a number of units in in Britain and end, ended up. I would need to research thoroughly its backstory, but it's ended up with uh, the Air Force in Ireland for a while. Okay. Um, but no, this 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 is this is a British. Um, so this is a proper walrus. Proper walrus, yes. not yeah. the seagull. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. This is this is a walrus proper. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful aircraft. Yes, I know. And we get again, we get children looking at that and looking at differences of design, ruggedness, purpose of why it's designed, um, you know, effectiveness, streamlining, weight, shape, all the things that they might expect from an aircraft. You say, well, that comes out of the same factory as. as Spitfire. Spitfire, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? And then you get them thinking about actually all airplanes don't have to be designed super slick like the Spitfire. It depends what job that you need them to do. Exactly. And they're not just out of the same factory, but out of the same mind of yes, the designer. Yes, indeed. Wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. In fact, I think he was far more into flying boats than he was fighters anyway, wasn't he? Mitchell? Yeah, very much so. And it's, again, it's that other area, that Southampton area, the Solent, the, you know, all the flying that would be going on for the Schneider Trophy racing, all of the development on the Solent. There's, there's a huge amount of waterborne aviation that he would have been aware of and familiar with and, and been part of. So yeah, it's no surprise that he ends up you know, designing beautiful flying boats That's as well. So. Yeah. Well, our Hall 2, we come into our Hall 2, the museum runs in a, in a sort of a theme, um, slightly chronological theme, of course, from World War One through to our next, next Hall, World War Two, which starts with fairy swordfish alongside a fairy fulmar. Um, we have the biggest collection of fairy aviation aircraft and artifacts um, and archive objects anywhere in the world, so we're very proud of the fairy aviation collection that we have. And again, as a storyline here, this, we basically start World War Two with big World War One technology. Yeah. So yeah. you know that's effectively what the Swordfish and Gladiators and other aircraft at that time were. Yes, we're beginning to get monoplanes. Of course, the Spitfire has happened in 1936, but it's still you know, coming to the end of its development period. Um, but it's but it's but it's one of the few monoplane fighters that are, that are that are of any significant use there's still a lot of biplanes around yep. and effectively there's this big world war one technology is in a sense 
still the more recognizable part of aviation at, at that time. And then just like we saw with the S27 short and the Sopwith Baby, look at the step change within a couple of years exactly. because of another war. So exactly, yeah. it's all of a sudden we've gone to all metal skin, uh, streamlined, retractable uncarriage, twice the speed. And that's the same with the short S27. Yep. The Sopwith Baby's doing 115 miles an hour, whereas the short well, S27 was doing maybe 50 miles an hour at absolute best. Yeah. But that was a big step change. Then double the speed in three years is actually a massive change. Here we are in World War II, double the speed again with between the, the Fulmar and the Swordfish. So that technology leap because of a war um, is played out yet again in this hall. The interesting thing about the technology leap from the Swordfish to the Fulmar and also the next one, which was the Firefly, is they all operated together on the same carriers together, didn't they? There was no sort of replacement. It was just using them all, which is amazing. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, that's part of the background success story of, of really how the Royal Navy's developed itself to be that flexible and transferable and, and, and to be able to cross-operate different types of aircraft on effectively not much in the way of a ship change. The ships don't change a huge amount through the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Um, yet the aircraft types and speeds and the variety of aircraft that, that are used in those and how the squadrons and each individual squadron and their knowledges and, and, and requirements would need to cross-adapt on a ship. The team working to enable that is, is extremely impressive. Um, and that's essential to any carrier that's, that's operating effectively. Absolutely. Now, the Swordfish has got a reputation of being a great, great aircraft, and, and right and so, but the former always seems to have a bit of a, a bad reputation when you talk to the experts, you know. <laughs> but I've actually talked to people who were involved, I've talked to a lot of fleet air arm veterans in New Zealand, and one or two of them were involved with the former, and they said, no, at the time, they were fine. It was just something better came along later and made this look, look worse, you know. Yeah, this is always the problem, and yeah. um, people are very quick to give something a bad name and unfortunately the bad name can often stick. Exactly. Um, there's so many things you hear uh, which are what I call fast fire press headlines that tend to get it. The Spitfire won the Battle of Britain of course, no other aircraft was, was out yeah. there. Uh, I'm not sure where the Hurricanes were or even the Gladiator at times. You know, but <laughs> yeah. It's that fast fire news headline which is completely inaccurate but it's the thing which sticks. Only Lancasters seem to bomb over 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 Germany. Yeah, don't um, forget the Halifax <laughs> and, and the Stirling, which the Stirling gets a I'm really sorry. bad rap, and it was an, ex, it was an excellent air, aircraft at its time. And right? all the way up to even in aircraft in modern conflict today, it doesn't matter what it is, yep. something will happen or something will grab a headline, oh, or right. or there will be a little bit of a push of a preference for the positive or negative. Doesn't matter what that preference is, and then that positive or negative seems to stick. Exactly. The Fulmar was an excellent airplane. Exactly. Um, at its time, it was extremely advanced. It gets superseded very quickly, but then look what it superseded with the Swordfish. And that's yeah. exactly the story yeah. here. Um, yeah, the, the development speed during World War II was astonishing. So, a beautiful airplane, sleek, slim, streamlined, quick for its day, quickly outclassed by engine development. So another aircraft comes along which is faster and all of a sudden people say, oh, well, the Fulmar is not, not much good. Vivian Bellamy, the late Vivian Bellamy, um, who was both in the Fleet Air Arm and the Royal Air Force during World War II and ended up marrying into the Ferry family. So he had a complete, total, lifelong 
connect with not just flying aircraft but the aircraft industry. Yeah. Um, he always used to give that a pat as he walked past um, in his later years, sadly no longer with us. But he always used to say whenever he said it, saw it, oh well, when I finally go, I hope they've got a full mar up there waiting for me. So, <laughs> so that for me says it all. There was yeah, nothing wrong with the full mar. Yeah. If Vivian was hoping to find one <laughs> on his on his silver cloud somewhere, that. Uh, um, this is the only one still in existence. It is the only full mar. How did this one survive? Uh, this did remain at the Fairy Factory uh, as a communications hack for the for the senior um, Fairy Factory um, staff members. Um, so Sir Richard Ferry would fly it around with, 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 with some of the seniors if they needed to be in different parts of the country. Yeah. They then kept it and used it as a race airplane when aircraft racing was popular in the 1950s. Wow. So it was, it was painted up in the Ferry factory logo colors and they used it as a, as a race aircraft. Uh, and then finally, as it began to get more aged and the Fleet Air Arm Museum had begun to be on the horizon, they felt that the, the correct and proper place was for, his, for it to come to the museum yeah. and that's how we've got it here. So good, so good that at least this one's survived. So. Absolutely and it started that long connect with the Ferry Aviation Company and the Ferry family that we still connect with today. Um, we've got very very good um, you know working and, and research and historical connect with the Ferry family and that's been ongoing for 50 plus years where key items, be it aircraft or archive items, directly connected with the aviation um, side of, of, of the Ferry family, they've often seen that actually this is the, the place for that object or that piece of archive to come and they've seen that it's, it's come here and we're very, very grateful for that. Um, even John Ferry, late John Ferry's flycatcher, yeah, that, that's part of the collection, it's not on display at the moment, it's in that reserve store that we were talking about, um, but, but, but John wanted that to come here. Um, as well, which I refuse to call a replica. It was built by John Ferry <laughs> at, at Bossington House in Hampshire uh, from Ferry Drawings, so it's a late production model as far as I'm concerned, exactly. it's not a replica. Exactly, uh, I, yeah. It would be far too rude to call it a replica. So, one little snippet of uh, Ferry history that I don't know whether you might know this, but just before the war, Arthur Lowe worked at the factory and was building swordfish. Didn't know that, yeah. really. Uh, wow. And he was in the Territorial Army at the time, uh, some horse unit, cavalry unit, and of course he got called up, so he left ferries. But Well, I never yeah. knew that. Brilliant. Oh, great. <laughs> Absolutely great. The martlet here, that is a martlet, not a. That's, it's, yeah, well, ha, it is a martlet. It's, uh, technically, it's a Grumman G36A. It's, it's even, it's before martlet. Um, it's. It's one of it is the only remaining example of that batch of aircraft built by uh, Grumman's that were ordered by France in 1940. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, when France uh, falls, the contract is basically in abeyance and up in the air, uh, and Great Britain takes over the contract. And that's that's the subject of a book I'm trying to finish off, the same as the Corsair project and the okay. Corsair book, which came out. So we've done a similar operation with this by doing a complete paint archaeology exercise on this aircraft and trying to fully understand all of the development details that led to the G36A as it was in the Grumman catalogue becoming uh, a fighter that was available for France and then 
comes to Great Britain and they actually arrive in Britain as G36As and then they subsequently get called Martlets and then by the time we've joined the US 5th Fleet in the Pacific yep. we're flying Wildcats which are effectively the same aircraft but the American variant. Yep. We then modify the name again and the Fleet Air Arm is then flying the Wildcat. So the aircraft as a type goes through several sort of name and number changes before it all becomes known as a Wildcat. Right, right, right. So the paint that's on there now, is that is it some of it is original and some has been It is. Up? Rather like the Corsair, we did a did an inch by inch uh, paint uh, archaeology process on the whole aircraft. Painstakingly inch by inch, picking, peeling, rubbing, scraping the 1960s restoration paint finish yeah. away yeah. Um, <laughs> and revealing what existed of the totally original World War II colours and markings of that Grumman Martlet G36 as, as, it, as it existed. Now the wings, top and bottom surface of the wings, the tail plane, the rudder, um, all of that is totally original. There's one or two small panels behind the cockpit and of course the gun forward gun panels. Uh, those are totally original, 100% okay. original paint and paint referencing. Sadly, the fuselage had been stripped in the 1950s, completely back to bare metal, and I'm beginning to understand why that was, and that will all be part of what's in the book okay. when the book comes out. Um, but we're now still finally trying to understand that strange two colors of green, which the paint finish was originally. And again, I'm, I'm deep into a lot of information that I've been able to get from the Grumman archive. Um, okay getting on for 10 plus years study of other archive material and other reference material associated with Grumman Martlets and particularly the, 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 the G36A to Mark I Martlet specifically. I, you know, and this, this, the, the focus of the project and the book will only be on that very, very first set of aircraft uh, and that's plenty enough to focus on yeah. the Martlet. It seems to be an incredibly complicated beast to understand. Um, but that will all come out as part of, of that um, write-up exercise. But yes, what you're looking at here that shows what I call the care-worn, slightly scruffy, uh, straight-from-service paint is absolutely original from 1940. It's the, it's the truly original Grumman G36A delivery scheme to Great Britain, albeit that it's in that unusual colour, two colours of green. So that unusual two colours of green would have been applied in the factory? Yes. For the French. Yeah. And so that's actually a French colour scheme with British markings put on it. Or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what I'm right. what I'm finally I can't this seems to be the project which will never conclude. Uh, because every time I think I've got hold of it by the tail, it seems to zoom off in another different direction. It is either um, French colour scheme with British markings, that's one possibility. It could be French paint used for British markings. It could be an unusual fleet air arm requested scheme. Mm, yeah. I okay. believe I know the answer to that. You'd have to buy the book to know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but A, I've got to write the book and B, I've got to be completely sure of my findings. So I'm not going to say any more at the moment, but those are, the three, those are the three likely possibilities at the moment. Uh, having said that, true to form, the project will now throw me a fourth possibility, I suspect, but, um, but at the moment I, I believe those are the three um, points that I need to get full clarification on and then I will understand which of those is the reason why it's the colour it is. And I think I know what it is, but I'm not going to say yet, A, because it would spoil the book, B, because I am still at the moment just a tiny little bit unsure about one of those possibilities. Fair enough. 
Okay, well, our listeners will have to wait until the book comes out. <laughs> Which would lead us onto the Corsair, for oh, those yes. of you that, that know that. So this, here's the one that I can say in true, true fashion. Here's one we, we prepared earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Including the book. <laughs> and there is a version two of the book out now. That we, we did a re-release of the okay. book because there was new information which came out, again, about 10 years after the, the first book came out. This one is the one which set the whole paint archaeology um, theme absolutely in place for the Fleet Air Museum and not for me but for the team and for the Fleet Air Museum I'm proud to say actually stopped a lot of people around the world and made people stop and rethink about the size and the scope and the, the ability of what you can achieve with this paint archaeology. Lots and lots and lots of people have done small areas of all kinds of objects from steam trains to cars to whatever taking away a small area to actually analyze and study the correct color or maybe get a marking or whatever detail that's there's nothing new in that we were quite ahead of a lot of the games by and i'm not going to say the first i'm sure somebody had done something maybe on a similar scale but on a whole aircraft scale i don't believe many people had, had achieved that to this level of detail and the team that worked on this with me at the time absolutely brilliant um, they thought I was bonkers to start with, but once they'd started finding really interesting historical details, they really, really, really got into the whole project. And we never believed there would be an entire aircraft's worth of original paint to find hiding beneath that layer in, of, of 1960s paint. Uh, and it astonished us. We, we thought we'd find maybe some useful sized pieces yeah. that we could retain and then use that to inform the information to create one more very accurate paint finish. It was the project which kept on giving every sort of square inch or so and every foot and every other other square inch kept delivering more original material until the whole, eventually the whole aircraft emerged beneath it. Long project. Um, I expected us to have found all that there was to find in maybe 18 months, typically took five years in between our other museum work okay but that was great because we could stop and start we had research time we could break away and do our other museum work and the trustees who were cautious at the time because they could see it was going to take quite a long time and it meant the Corsair would be off display for a long time yep. uh, they liked it they we had a, a body of trustees that were very historically minded um, they were definitely of the of the, the the feel and mood to explore it properly and see what what we could achieve and I'd begun to make some inroads into the thinking here to get people thinking that way and they said okay yeah um, let's let's see but they were slightly wary and asked that thorny question how long is it going to take I don't know how do I know um, but we gave them a reasonable estimate and sort of 18 months to two years um, was all I would put on it at that stage it kept ending up in the news, in the aviation magazines and lots of um, sort of chatter going around on all kinds of, it was even before sort of social media really picked up, but by the time we, the book was coming out, social media was coming in, it was picking up very, very regular news flashes and updates and we were in the headlines, yep. particularly in the heritage and the museum world, it was in the headlines quite a lot because of what we were doing and the way we were treating it and, and what it was yielding that it's interesting that the ball spun around a little bit by that time and the trustees were then saying, how long can you make this last? 
This is good. We're getting a lot of free advertising yeah. and a lot of kudos and a lot of, lot of, lot of high-profile heritage and museum accolade out of this. You know, That's can, good. can we stretch it a bit longer? I said, well, it's stretching itself. We can't go any faster than it wants to go. Um, so yes, it's going to be a while yet. And at that point, they said, "Well, okay, we're comfortable with that because it's 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 always sounding good when it's in the news." So, um, so it was interesting how the project itself helped change, helped make a step change to the what might have previously been. Yeah, that's very interesting. Hurry up and finish it because we want it on display. Yeah. Um, and actually, it, it became treated as a much much more serious, basically paint archaeology project. We've linked with with a number of higher establishments, Bournemouth University being one, um, who very much brought their students here to, to, to get the students thinking about it being a, a more unusual, but a different type of archaeology, just so they could get their students thinking archaeology isn't all about digging up bones on Salisbury Plain. There's a whole set of other areas of archaeology, including modern objects and industrial archaeology and, and a whole sort of remit. So it's been used quite widely to, to um, be part of quite a lot of education programs. Well, that's that's excellent. I mean, the first time I ever heard about this museum was by seeing uh, something about the Corsair uh, project on a forum, and I don't, I don't even know how many years ago it was, but, um, you know, I didn't even know about this museum existing at, at that time until I... And that, that's how I found out about this place, which because of the course here. Um, I was going to say, do you know the, what's, what's the history of this aircraft? What, did it serve on a carrier? Or? Uh, it, well, yes, but not in frontline service. Um, it, it, was, it was delivered from Goodyear, so it was a Goodyear built um, FG1A. Uh, it, it arrives in Great Britain in, in 1944, does workup training pending going to uh, the Far East, gets loaded onto an aircraft carrier to go to the Far East, and that was during early August 1945. Right. The first bomb gets dropped, um, and basically the whole squadron is, is, is put on hold, and then within a week, they're beginning to actually stand squadrons down. So this aircraft got loaded, got changed, there's color code marking changes from white to pale blue, ready to go to Southeast Asia as a first stage stop. Um, so all of this evidence, there's, there's, there's evidence of, of, of markings, changes, pending going, it doesn't go. It gets loaded at Aldergrove Dock in Northern Ireland and then it gets unloaded. Right. So so we've got the whole story and the book totally chronicles the, the entire story that we discovered about the aircraft using all of the paint and the evidence and the witness marks and all of the deep study of the object mostly using paint and witness marks that we can find uh, to help us actually put stage date provable evidence to, to, to complete that story. Okay. Um, and then it comes out of service, goes to Cranfield College, uh, where it gets used as a training aid up until the 1960s. And then, of course, it's identified and comes to the Fleet Air Arm Museum. So, yeah. Oh, right. The, 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 I, I wondered how it retained just all the original paint for all that time. And then came here and got painted. In Cranf well, that's part of that trend we were talking about earlier. Yeah. In Cranfield College, it, it goes uh, into the college and it's just basically used as, a, as, a, as an educational and aircraft engineering training aid. And it's not until it comes to the museum, looking like it did now. This is a totally original, sort of care-worn, battle-worn, um, scruffy-looking object that she is. Sorry. <laughs> 
she, 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 can, she can have her feelings hurt, you know. Yeah. <laughs> she knows what I mean. <laughs> um, but it's real, you know, like it or hate it, it's real. It's when it comes to the museum, and of course back then they're opening up a brand new military museum. It's very much uh, a focal point for the fleet air arm. They want things to look their best. So, so they want the aircraft looking absolutely at their best for a brand new museum on a Royal Naval Air Base. They're, they're not going to be completely comfortable with an aircraft which, which looks like it's got some wear and tear on it. So it gets painted and it's that typical um, trend of the 1960s and 70s. Give it a once over paint finish, make it look very tickly and put it on display. Mercifully, they didn't rub it down or pre-treat, they just painted over the existing paint, which uh, by the you know, year 2000, that was beginning to get slightly friable uh, and, and, and able to be parted from that original undersurface paint, um, which took us a lot of trial and a lot of experimentation. We've got very good at techniques for taking paint off of paint and leaving the original paint underneath. That's, that's an art we've sort of developed here. There's lots of people doing it around the world on fine art and vandalized paintings of grandmasters and goodness knows what else. We've developed it in, into a technique that here we do it on, on, on aircraft and, and sort of 20th century mechanical objects. Um, and we've learned a lot and we still learn a lot. I wouldn't say we know everything there is to know about it now. We are always coming across something when we're doing a similar project which will test us. You know, the whole thing is an, as a rolling experiment. You don't know how well adhered any patch of paint is to the surface beneath. You don't know how well that underpaint surface is adhered to the original material. So you can't just show somebody a couple of square inches and say, there, you do it like that. You almost have to be continually experimenting for the whole aircraft. Um, and that's a huge challenge. It can give you a lot of grief at times, but it's very rewarding when you can achieve what we've done here as a team. Um, as as basically reach into 1944 and just almost pick a Corsair straight out of service in 1944 and have it on ice and say that's exactly what they look like. That's amazing. Uh, um, at the time when the Corsairs were in service, uh, I know that there were a lot of New Zealanders in the fleet here um, flying them and uh, I believe with the British Pacific Fleet, one in every four pilots on the British Pacific Fleet were New Zealanders and so there's a good chance that Kiwis may have flown this particular one. Could well do. It's on, on 1835 Squadron and 768 Squadron are the two uh, squadrons that it, that it was uh, attached to. It, 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 you know, it only had a very short period of, of, of service from August 1944 through to end of hostilities in 45. Um, but if, yeah, if there were New Zealand uh, pilots uh, on either 768 Squadron or 1835 Squadron, then there's an extremely high likelihood that they flew KD-431. Yeah. Um, very much so. It'd be great to know yeah. if anybody's got it in their logbooks. Um, that would be fantastic to, 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 to know. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I've talked to um, several Corsair pilots who were in the fleet around. They're all dead now, but um, some of them I did actually copy their logbooks. So I'll have to go through and have a look. Yeah, it'd be wonderful. No, we are always, always, we never switch off the research. There's mm -hmm. always, even when a project's finished physically, there's always continuing research. Hence why um, the original Corsair book explored one of the one of the, the strands that we wanted to explore was did Godfrey Woodbine Parish actually fly this Corsair back from Ceylon because there was a huge uh, background story stroke legend stroke question mark over is that why we had a, a, a very original FG1A here in, in England in uh, the 1960s 
was it the one which Godfrey flew back from from Ceylon? Right. Um, and we didn't know, and we did a lot of research during the um, project, which didn't conclude that. It was left unconcluded. His daughters, who obviously survived, and Godfrey's long gone, sadly, but his daughters were aware of the project, and we worked quite closely with them. Uh, trying to piece together bits of evidence um, from things that he'd said and bits that he's had in diaries and various um, sort of scraps of letters and things that they had in the family. But they couldn't find his logbook. For years and years and years they couldn't find his logbook. So we left it as an unconcluded part of the story. And again, in about 2018, uh, I think it was just before everybody went into lockdown, um, Ursula, the daughter, the oldest daughter, came to visit me at the museum and said, I've got something you're going to be very pleased to see. Uh, and they'd found the logbooks oh, wow. in, in the family, one of the family uh, homes amongst her and her sisters, whatever. Uh, one of them had finally put their hand on the logbook. And we now have the whole story of exactly what uh, Godfrey did in this epic flight back. Uh, and the upshot of it is, he didn't fly KD-431 back from Ceylon, but he did fly back from Ceylon as a complete one-off solo flight uh, to get back from um, Ceylon back to Great Britain um, as a result of an urgent signal that, he, that he'd been sent and he was a squadron CO so he used his rank and he harnessed up an aircraft and flew back um, again we put an addendum in the back of the, the Corsair book which can now completely explore and catalogue that flight epic flight unbelievable it should be made into a movie it's, it's, yeah. it's absolutely brilliant absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so Chronologically, down through Hall 2, of course, we've started with Swordfish. We've gone through that early, um, almost in the Battle of the Atlantic period, which is, again, which is um, relevant to the, to the G36A Martlet, Winkle Brown flying those, um, of course, on, on convoy duties. Um, and here we go again, Eric Winkle Brown again, at the bottom end of our Hall 2, and we're standing in front of Vampire Mark 1, Serial number LZ551G. This is LZ551G. This is Eric Brown's vampire that he made the very first jet deck landing onto an aircraft carrier deck in December 1945. So this isn't like that aircraft. This isn't a similar type. It is actually Eric Brown's uh, jet from that from that day in in December 1945. That's awesome. And if you look at the big picture on the wall, you got you got a a huge photograph on the wall of what we call two seconds from touchdown and there there is Eric uh, coming into land on HMS Ocean in this aircraft in 1945. That's fabulous. That's oh, in it, beautiful condition too. It's it is. I have to say this one has um, had that what I call the, the, the 1970s 80s re-embellish yeah. so it's clearly been repainted during that time um, yes, there's a part of me which says I wish it still looked a bit like the Corsair, yeah. which was in its much more careworn and sort of rubbed and, and out of service finish. That's the purest in me, that's the bit I like. But over and above that, to have the actual airplane in the collection, that is very, very special. You know, so we, we are so fortunate to be able to have this on long term loan from the Science Museum, because it does belong to the Science Museum, okay. but they recognize, of course, that absolute defining connect between this piece of history as a Royal Navy aviation story, the very first time a jet lands onto an aircraft carrier deck, um, that they've allowed this to be 
on loan to us for, for many, many years, 50 plus years, I think now. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, it is perfect to have the actual aircraft as a storyline. Any, any other Mark one, Mark one Vampire wouldn't do, I'm afraid. Not. When it comes to this particular story, you, you've got to have this one. <laughs> and it's a miracle that it still exists, and it's an absolute um, boon that, we've, that we're able to have it here. Yeah, I know that there were sea venoms, but were the vampires actually in service on carriers? Or? Uh, no, not as such. The, the, the vampire, yeah, the venom takes over as the, as, the, as the actual sort of operable deck. Right. Vampires used as training aircraft. Vampires yep. used as workup training, two-seater trainers, um, but not not as deck-used aircraft. The venom takes over at that point. So was this an actual RAF aircraft that was borrowed for those for the trials? Or the, uh, or it's a proto- well, it's a prototype. It, they, they were aiming towards using. I mean, how them were making. Um, they tried a mosquito to a deck and that didn't work particularly well so they'd made um, the Sea Hornet so they were already to have them making um, naval aircraft in, in, in the, the shape of the Sea Hornet yep. and everybody at that point knows the next generation of aircraft are going to be jet anyway so there's a whole background series of projects and thinking and cooperative works going on between the Air Ministry, the RAF and the Navy. So having a jet and the the Navy basically want to, that space race that's going on at the time, that that who's going to be the first, who's going to be the first to do whatever through aviation history and the next immediately coming out of the end of World War II, who can put a jet aircraft onto a deck first uh, and the Royal Navy want to do that. So it's all part of a combined series of sort of background operations that are going on at very high level with the air ministry and the government and and the, and the main service branches um of what they're going to do with their jet aircraft so the navy want one available so they can put one onto a deck first and that's part of what that prototyping uh, experiment series was, right. was was aiming for okay but they're already like we were saying earlier which aircraft comes for us they already have things like the venom in sight as the main um sort of a, aviation, uh, naval aviation theme on the jet aircraft. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And, and you, of course we the... finish up here at the end of the hall with um, Sea Fury yep. uh, and the MiG-15, which is a Korean um, version of the of the MiG, but we, you know, we, we didn't have a, um, sorry it's a Polish version of the MiG rather than a Korean version, so we, we couldn't get a, an absolute genuine uh, Korean MiG-15 for the exhibition, but it's pretty close. You know, there's much different between that and, and, and a genuine um, 1950s Korean period um, aircraft. But it tells that story of that next step change in jet aviation and the play out of the Sea Fury, the last of the piston engine, sort of big, big piston engine fighters of, of that era, and the next full stage of not just jet, but they're moving into the swept wing jet and then the even faster sort of uh, series of jet age aircraft that would follow. So if it rounds off this hall, so again, if we sort of look back that way and look where we started with swordfish and we were talking about it being big World War One technology. And by the time we get to this end of the hall, we've gone all through the Leaseland aircraft from World War Two America period yep. and down to Eric Brown in December of 1945, cracking that nut of putting a jet onto the deck, and then by the early 50s, the jet age is clearly what's going to be uh, the next generation of aircraft. Fantastic. Right, we'll skip through into carrier.
give you a little bit of an update there. So our Hall 3 in the series of, of, of four aircraft hangars that we've got, or exhibition halls that we've got, our Hall 3 is our on-land representation of, of an aircraft carrier. It's very difficult to tell the story of the Royal Naval Air Service and the Fleet Air Arm and flying at sea without an aircraft carrier. So back in 1994, the trustees um, took a very bold step. Look out, whirlwind flying overhead. And everything. <laughs> took a very bold step of devoting an entire uh, exhibition hall to quite a theatrical layout of, of how a carrier would look yep. standing on the flight deck with the island in front of us. And the island um, is actually three decks high. You can walk through the island and actually follow a whole storyline through the, uh, the island, which takes about 45 to 50 minutes, okay. dressed with authentic ship's equipment. We were allowed to go to a ship scrapyard from the Ministry of Defence uh, and take away lorry load after lorry load of non-sensitive uh, ship's hardware and items to dress the inside of the carrier so it absolutely looks like a, a ship inside. So the, the essence here, and this is a rework, anybody that saw the original carrier exhibition in 1994, uh, we've changed it coming out of lockdown. It was time for a change. The, the, the flight deck hadn't altered really in that period of time, 26, 27 years or whatever. Yep. So we felt that coming out of lockdown, it was time to give the carrier a refresh, yep. uh, which people have responded to really well. Uh, and we basically it captured that essence of a hundred years of naval aviation on the flight deck with brand new visuals and, uh, on the side screen there so we got some brand new uh, CGI uh, footage happening on the side and uh, we start with a shot with Pup to our right which was where it all begins with, with Edwin Dunning and the very very first landing on a ship with an aircraft uh, back in 1916, 1916-1917 and then we tell a, a series of spot stories as we move from our right-hand side here around the carrier deck, ending up with Sea Harrier and the Phantom at the end. So we've got Pup, we look at the Seafire next, which basically is the Spitfire going to sea. Yep. Uh, the Western Wyvern, a unique aircraft there, the only one in existence. And again, it's that <clears throat> almost that pinnacle of big piston engine aircraft. It's got the 24-cylinder Rolls-Royce Eagle engine in it. Again, a unique engine now. Um, lots going on around us, as you can hear. We've got, we've got helicopters flying all around us on the screen. Uh, the Supermarine Attacker, start of the jet age. Um, the step next into the Vixen, the big jets of the 1950s and 60s, the Sea Vixen there. The, Buccaneer S1 next to it, which looks like it's coming at us at about a hundred miles an hour already. Uh, and then it changed back in size. Look at the aircraft getting smaller again. Um, the Sea Harrier FA2, vertical takeoff, of course, another whole new concept. And then the Phantom, which is there on its catapult launch with the extended nose. Um, again, you know, a key part of naval aviation through the 19. 
certainly through the 1970s, um, you know, an absolute top-line fighter of his day. And we're looking at now with the F-35, of course, we're, we're revisiting an era where aircraft are about the same size as the Phantom, which yep. is interesting. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's the carrier deck. It's best left explored without anybody trying to interpret it. There's plenty of interpretation around, and you actually just almost need to immerse yourself in it exactly. to fully get the, the feel and the understanding and, and, and the theme of what's going on. So that was a quick overview, but, but yeah, there would be plenty to explore, including the island, if you wanted to uh, sure. come back and look at that. That's brilliant. It's, it looks really good. Leading the leading the, the engineering challenge on this one. Um, yeah, very Barracuda. Excellent. Dave, one of our volunteers. Dave's out on the forklift the other day. Yes, yes. So, what can I say? <laughs> we talked earlier about the museum having the biggest collection of ferry air, aircraft, ferry aviation aircraft, artifacts, and um, sort of historic content yep. anywhere in, in the world. We've got quite a collection of ferry aircraft, um, and one that's been missing, uh, missing on parade for a long, long time is the Barracuda, the ferry Barracuda. There are no ferry Barracudas existing anywhere in the world right. that we know of, not as complete aircraft. And the museums long had an aspiration going back to the 19 early 1970s, when Barracuda DP-872 was extracted from Inachloch in Northern Ireland, uh, having crashed there in 1944. Um, the, the, the remains of the aircraft was brought out in the 1970s, and the crew correctly buried in Eglinton Churchyard. Now it's unthinkable these days that an aircraft crashes anywhere in Great Britain and the crew aren't recovered immediately. This was 1944. There were aircraft crashing everywhere every day, Enochlox is a particularly dangerous and difficult piece of very, very boggy um, peat bog land with suspended bog layers and things. It's a really dangerous place to try and access. I know, I've been there, we've looked at it um, quite recently. And we can get a full understanding of, sadly, but uh, logistically, why they didn't and couldn't get there at the time. Yep. Fast forward from 1944 to the early 1970s and the families of the crew reapproached the MOD and said, is it possible with more modern equipment to reinvestigate extracting that, that wreck and, and getting you know, their, their family members out of very correctly, which is what happened. Yes, they, right. yes, they, they revisited that um, and that was tended to. The families then said that the, the wreck could come to the Fleet Air Arm Museum, provided something in time, no timescale um, committed to, but something meaningful was done, not just for that crew, but for all Barracuda crews um, as a result. So DP-872 formed the basis and the start point of an idea and an aspiration to see if enough other Barracuda material could be gathered together. Other crash sites were known about on high ground areas in Scotland and the north of England. 
approvals were gained through the MOD, of course, they've got to be given correct approval. You can't just go picking up pieces of airplane. It all still belongs to the ministry. Yep. Uh, but with all the correct approvals in place, year after year after year, that was uh, looked into. And uh, from the 1970s all the way up through the, the 80s, 90s, I've been aware of, of the project and been partly responsible for some of the, the collecting of those components until we get to around about 2014 or 15. And William, William Gibbs, who's the, the lead engineer on this, is deciding that we ought to get all of the barracuda material and lay it out and just see what we've got. Have we got enough to actually properly start a rebuild? And that's exactly what we did. So we laid out a huge area of the store hangar. We, we taped on the floor a barracuda to shape and size, yep. a scale sort of tape shape. Yep. And then we filled in like a jigsaw puzzle all the pieces we'd been collecting for so many years to see what we had. And we actually surprised us how much we'd collected. Um, and it signaled the start. We thought, yes, we've got enough to properly make a start right. on this project. Right. Bits had happened before. There'd been stops and starts on the project. But funding had dried up, um, and there was we didn't have the facility that we're standing in now. So you know, there, were, there were limitations. There were reasons why the project had stopped and started. But now it had a green light, and the trustees were clearly giving it a green light, saying, "Yes, we need to do this." What was the point of collecting all of this stuff for so long? What was the point of telling the families in 1970 that something meaningful would be done if we're not going to do it? So, and we need a barracuda to fill that part of the story. Yes. So we've got the fulmar, as we've seen earlier, we've got a firefly, uh, the swordfish, we've got an albacore, we're missing the barracuda. So, so that's really why it all comes together. A number of things coming to that point where we said, okay, let's make a proper start. So the whole build is using as much original material as possible, albeit from crash site recovery. And if you look in detail, yes, you will see there's some that have got pits and yep. marks where they're clearly you know, bits of wreckage that have come from, from those source areas of material, but hugely, hugely meticulously worked on, repaired, straightened out, cleaned, decorroded, um, and fashioned back into completely usable barracuda material. Even the bulkhead, part of that bulkhead is, is fabricated, part of it, the lower part, is, is original. So okay. if you look around, you'll see there's masses and masses of original parts I think that that tube and I'm going to guess we'll find out that tube I think and those two top tubes are new yep. a little bit of the skin work in the bulkhead and part of that spar top capping there but everything oh and those top shear plate tube box plates 99% of the rest of what you see is, is recovered crash site material. Genuine stuff, wow. So it's not going to fly. We don't aim to fly. It's like we were saying earlier, you know, the museum world and the flying world can coexist completely yes. happily. We just do two different things. Yep. And our aim is to build a barracuda that will be as factory accurate as possible as a museum piece, as a reference object, as an example of something which doesn't exist today, which is a complete barracuda. Yep. And if we can achieve this level of detail into the build will be very pleased if we can follow that through the rest of the aircraft. So it's not going to fly, but it will stand there as a factory accurate barracuda that people, however far into the future, can stand and enjoy and go, that's what a barracuda properly looks like. Fantastic. So yes, it's going to be a long job. Um, how the, 
it's the biggest question we get asked. How long is it going to take? You know, um, we don't know. Uh, ultimately, eight to ten years. I would have thought for the fuselage easily. Yeah. How much material have we got? Well, it's all around us. We've got a lot more in the reserve hangar. Of course, you know, we have way, way more material than you're looking at here on the floor. Yep. But how long will it take to take apart some of these bent and corroded and twisted pieces to extract the usable items that we need from them? Sometimes it takes hours. Sometimes it takes weeks just to take something apart without breaking it or exactly. mucking it up yep. because we are dealing with the last bits of barracuda that we know that exists. So if we muck it up, we have properly mucked it up. But then we've got to make a new bit, which would take more time and money, um, and wouldn't be an original part either. So the, the aim is to make this out of as much of proper original barracuda without cutting new metal. So that's, that's what's taking a lot of the time. That's excellent. And also, I know that you can follow the restoration on Facebook. There's an excellent yeah. page with updates quite regularly. Barracuda Rebuild, yeah, Ferry, Barrac Re Ferry Barracuda DP872 Rebuild on Facebook. The team are extremely good at, at posting up weekly almost. Um, yeah. The challenges, what they've done, problems they've come across, odd things that they've found. Um, all of the thinking, all of the challenges that, they've, that they are experiencing that week or as a part of a project, they're really, really good at feeding that up onto, onto the Facebook page. Um, and we're getting a lot of, not just positive response, but we're getting just a lot of great following out of that. People are tuning into it more and more and more. Um, and that's really encouraging. People, people seem to get what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that's, and that's nice. Yep. Excellent. Because there are days <laughs> when we question ourselves. <laughs> 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 no, we, we, we know exactly what we're doing and why, but, it, but, it, but it, some days there is some very, very big head shaking going on in here when, when something really is trying to defeat us. Yeah. Uh, but there's a way around it. There's always a way of engineering around it. Um, and that's a testament there. That's why, that's why it looks as factory correct as it does here. There's yeah. a massive amount of work to get that level of factory detailing into crumpled what were originally crumpled parts. And that is part of the challenge. Yes, we've got drawings. Yes, we've got photographs. Yes, we've got factory reference material, but we don't have a whole set of it. There are gaping great errors and gaps in you know, the, the drawing series or whatever. And the material, what was bent in the factory got, but got bent more in the crash. What was bent in the crash but shouldn't be bent at all. Um, all of that we've got to try and decipher because we've got no more instructions we've got no factory build schedule yeah. so we don't know what fits in ahead of what and we're already coming up against areas where we have to now really think hard wait a minute that bit looks like it may have to go in now otherwise we're not going to get at it in five stages time so we're always having to try and work and guess that out the fiery factory had hundreds of people working in different divisions the engine division probably didn't necessarily really know or, or bother to need to know what the wing division were doing. The wing division didn't know what the fuselage section necessarily were doing. We've got to try and guess all of that, and there's only four or five of us. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, and only limited amounts of information, so it is a massive, yeah. massive challenge. And, and um, you, you haven't got those people around anymore who can come in and give you the advice of, oh, we, we did it this Absolutely. way. Absolutely. We have yeah. come across one or two ferry factory employees, of course, and people that have worked on the aircraft in service, but not to the detail level that we need to know for building one. Yeah. 
Um, and of course, the people that even the people that worked in the factory only understood their small part exactly. of, of that mechanism of, of building an aircraft. And even that, they didn't know they were going to be asked questions on eight years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is it is a hugely hugely complicated um, beast to try and recreate from piles of. Wow. of, of pretty bent and, and, and what would look like hopeless material to work from, but, but, but it is actually yielding masses and masses of useful material. Um, and as I say, this is just one small section of a layout of wreckage that we've got from five or six crash sites um, over the last 30, 40 years, um, which stretches nearly 300 feet long in, in the hangar, over in the reserve hangar, we've got a lineup of Barracuda wreckage, yeah. so we've got a huge amount of material to, 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 to pick from. Um, yes, time, time and money, time, they're the two enemies. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you well with it, I think it's a fantastic project, I've been following it on Facebook for a long time, and uh, uh, I've, I've talked to a few people who flew the Barracuda, some of them hated it and some of them loved it, so... Um, it's back to that old story. It is, isn't it? Some, some people give it bad press and some otherwise. Yeah. I, I like to think we're straightening out some of the bad press to do with the Barracuda. Yeah. She, she was not a bad airplane. Yeah. Uh, she had a lot to try and prove in a very short space of time. Um, again, you know, we're back to aircraft which have enjoyed a run-up of proper development. If you took the Spitfire, Okay, you get the Spitfire in 1936 and by the Battle of Britain, it's quite good. If you'd taken the Spitfire in 1939 and pressed it into the Battle of Britain straight off the production line, I wonder how many people would have come out the other side saying, I don't think that's much of an airplane. Yep. The poor old Barracuda has to do that. It's off the drawing board and straight into service and yeah. it doesn't have four or five years of development, not in a fighting uh, situation. So with... Very talented, very capable, extremely clever new pilots, but they're all rushed into service as well. So you've got a lot going on with the Barracuda that it's, it's hardly surprising that it picks up a bit of bad press here and there. Uh, and then it's the bad press that tends to stick. Um, of course, yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot about the Barracuda we're understanding that is, doesn't make it that, that, that bad a ship. <laughs> That's good. So are you going to write a book on that as well? One day there will be a Barracuda book. We've got to, we've got to nail the Martlet book first. Yep. Um, and the Barracuda book is probably going to be several volumes, I would think, by the time we've, we finish this project. Uh, but yes, no, there will, be, there will need to be a good written um, document about this project, where it stems from, the challenges, um, the detailing which has gone into it, and, and the things we've discovered um, as part of the, the build. Ferries built them, Blackburn's built them, uh, Bolton Paul built them, even Westland's just down the road from us built uh, 18 okay. or 20. And even amongst the, the, the wrecked components we're finding, of course, parts which have been made by all of those factories. So there was obviously cross part um, swapping between factories as they yep. called for different components. Yep. Um, and of course there's interesting changes between components where we've got a Bolton and Paul part We've got a corresponding part from a Blackburn one where we're thinking which is the best one to use for the build. And actually, when you look at them and look at the drawing, both components and the drawing all differ. So there's wow. a whole story to tell there about the speed of production, how the drawing offices weren't keeping up with factory modification. 
um, all of that we were understanding in much, much deeper and tighter detail than we ever would have before if you weren't trying to build a single aircraft from a pile of multiple um, collections of wreckage. Yep. That's when you really start to understand all of those anomalies and all of the kind of things that were happening in 1940s fast factory production where we're witnessing it as we handle the parts now. Uh, and, and that's teaching us a lot. That is really interesting. That's, that's uh, another whole slice of life during the war that is completely forgotten and now you're rediscovering that. Absolutely. So, yeah. you've, got, you've got people of different skills um, being pressed in the factory works, so we're seeing varying skills on cutting, fitting, metal shaping. There's a whole series of, of sort of pictures and, and background that this project's telling us about how um, airplanes were quite literally rushed into service. Um, and yeah, there's, there's some there's some quite shocking bits of work that we've seen and there's still some exquisite work, um, but it's all molded together in one very, very, um, you know, good, complete aircraft. But, but yes, it's very telling what we're coming across. Um, yeah. Wow, fantastic. I, I should let you go. I know you've got Yeah, I'm going to have so. to scoot at that point, but lovely to meet you. Lovely and, to meet you And too. thank you very much, and enjoy the, 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 the rest of your time looking around the museum. Thank you. Cheers. With thanks to the Fleet Air Arm Museum, part of the National Museum of the Royal Navy. Find out more about them in the show notes. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
Yeah.